Support for Pivot comes from Vanta. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated fast. Now, you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, and that platform is Vanta. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, you can save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. To learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews, watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash pivot. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash pivot to watch Vanta's on-demand demo. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Scott Galloway is out the entire month of August. So today I'm joined by our very good friend, NBC News senior business correspondent, MSNBC anchor, Stephanie Rule. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Good to be here. And like, Scott, a month off. Are you kidding me? I know. I know. What? He's a European. He thinks he's European or something like that. I'm not sure what's going on. He's Floridian, okay? He's Floridian. Far from Europe. Yeah. Far from yeah. Europe. Well, I, yeah. you were my first choice to be first, obviously, because we're such a hit together. And, you know, I'm really I'm trying to find new partners in case something happens with Scott. As you know, it could at any moment. So I like to be prepared and see how I, who I get along with, who I spark with. And obviously, Wait, I spark with Do you think we you. get along? Yeah, I do. I do. Yes. I think we get along really well. Because I, I, I just along- agree with you. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. You were just like giving me a hard time about George Hahn, where we were saying he wanted to be on The View and we agreed he'd be really good. But you made a point. You made a salient point, which I think is unfair. But go ahead. Just make it. Not only do I want George Hahn to be on The View, I want him to be on The View. I want him to get his own show. Yeah, However, yeah. this argument kind of, of George replacing Meghan McCain is a non-starter <laughs> in the way of People are cast on that show. Meghan McCain was the Republican. When they're scouring American Republicans, George is definitely not on the list of Republicans. So who's going to get that job? What man would you put in there? What, What male would you put in there? I mean, they should have a man on there, don't you think? They should. Um... Or anybody, uh, you know. The, uh, how about a how about a a, a Mitt Romney flavored person? Oh, uh, you know, you know who? Jeff Flake. Oh, Jeff Flake. All right. Jeff Flake. Oh, that would be interesting with him and Whoopi Goldberg. Interesting. Yes. I like. Plus, it. he's I like Midwestern. It. Yeah. I Different like part it. of the country. Yeah, there you and go. And he's not Jeff Meghan McCain. That's the key part of it. Anyway, uh, so we have a lot to talk about. So let's talk a little bit about a few short things. One is Scarlett Johansson suing Disney for breach of contract after they premiered Black Widow in theaters and on Disney Plus at the same time. She was supposed to be paid a portion of the box office revenue, alleges streaming eight into her paycheck. It's pretty common uh, for movie stars to get paid a portion of the box office, but everything's changing. At the same time, uh, Reese Witherspoon apparently sold uh, Hello Sunshine uh, for $900 million. We'll see they're valuing it at that. Let's see what that's worth. But what's going on in Hollywood, Stephanie? What's what's happening? Well, on the sad front, now that everything is streaming or streaming and going box office style for, you know, sort of that next generation, mm-hmm. they're not going to have the same relationship with movies that we once did. And even yeah. though everything changed with every generation, I think it's really sad. The Scarlett Johansson one, um, listen, Pre-COVID, it was not uncommon for big, big stars to get these profit participations. So you right. get 20 million bucks up front, and then depending on how the box office looks, you get a kicker in the back end. Back that end. could be zero or it could be $50 million. Of course, mm-hmm. everything shut down because of COVID. Now, what's great about the fact that it's a Disney movie, they yeah. have the kind of money where they could shelf that movie for the last year and a half, hold it in inventory, and wait to release it in the box office. Right. However, they if try. you're Disney, right? Mm-hmm. You're not making money streaming yet. Disney Plus isn't a home run. They don't want to say, yes, we're going to give you a cut of the streaming service. A, because you can't define exactly how much money you should get. Well, if you sell it, in this case, they sold it for $30. So yes, they could. They could define those sales. 
Yes. That, yes. You know what? You're right. I'm wrong yeah. there. But yeah. listen, it's dicey territory for them to set a precedent to now pay. Now, going right. forward, I'm sure all these big stars are going to cut a different deal or Disney Plus will say, we'll buy projects wholesale, like Netflix style. Maybe yeah, they'll I pay you it. more money up front and nothing in yep. the back end. However, if she does win or they settle, this opens up the floodgates that whether it's all the other actors oh, in I think Marvel gonna... movies or other people there... I think Disney's going to win. This is the end of star the star system in Hollywood. You know, it sort of was the stars used to be sort of kept in a kept in an area, and then they'd bring them out in the old days, right? And that wasn't great. And then they got enormous power, and they open and close movies. Now I don't think it matters in these big movies who's in the star. I don't think a person can really open a movie anymore. It just has to be a you know, a, a superhero movie or something with a lot of noise and this and that. And so I, I think this is like the last vestiges of things. And if you're not entrepreneurial, like a Reese Witherspoon, where you do uh, yes. a lot of things, you're, you're I was finished. just about to say, you know, if you have your own production company, if you are actually doing something as a stakeholder, and yes, on the IP. yes, then you can continue to get paid. But mm-hmm. stars who get to be quote unquote equity holders just because they're stars. I don't yeah. think it's going to last. And given how much money, how difficult the last year and a half has been, remember if you're Disney, it's not yeah. just your studios, it's your theme parks. Like they're right. just not writing big checks. And with a new CEO, like maybe he's viewing this as Chapek, like he here's care. one of his, his, his ships of like, you know what? I don't need to dance with these stars. These movies are giant. You got 20 million bucks. You get what you get. You get what you get. The second thing is another woman blasting Hollywood, Amanda Knox. She took to Twitter over the weekend and very, and a really great thread to call out Matt Damon movie Stillwater. By the way, Matt Damon was also saying movies aren't the same anymore. In another interview, Knox was convicted and then acquitted of her, uh, of killing her roommate, uh, Meredith Kircher, uh, as a student in Italy. Um, she was, you know, this is this was sort of just such a miscarriage of justice. Stillwater opened this past Friday's director, Tom McCarthy, says the film was directly inspired by those uh, events. I'm going to read the first tweet in the thread that Knox posted the night before the movie opened. Does my name belong to me, my face? What about my life, my story? Why does my name refer to events I had no hand in? I return to these questions because others continue to profit off my name, face, and story without my consent. Most recently, the film, hashtag Stillwater. So she's technically a public figure. What do you, what do you think? What do you think? We do. I'm going to guess. I did. I'm going to yeah. guess that I disagree with your point of view. So I want you yeah. to go first. Uh, I think they, they should have involved her. I, obviously she didn't have an agent, but she had, she had talked about not doing things like that. I guess her story is not her own, but it's, it, it's pretty awful what they did. I think at the same time, a living I'm gonna person. I'm going to disagree. All right. I think okay. it's, she's a public person and it's a public story and they have every right to write a movie, make a movie. Yes. Do I think it would have been um good or interesting or maybe better for the film if they would have hired her on as a consultant in some sort of capacity? I'm guessing they didn't since yeah. she's out here saying uh nobody contacted me, but right. I haven't seen the film. I right. don't know what kind of light it paints her in. So right. it, it seems like it would have maybe been a, a smart idea. Um, but them not doing it, I don't think it's a big deal. Like, are are we now going to have to pay? Does every biographer have to pay their subject? I mean, we're going to interview Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. Did they have to pay Trump a side piece because they wrote a book about him? No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm sure he really aren't. It's sort of like, it's interesting because Monica Lewinsky, another figure who's been taken advantage of quite a bit, I think, um, is, is coming out with her own story with American crime story. I think she'll be, she, she's participating finally in this one where Beanie Friedman plays. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. But it's a really interesting issue. I, I, I would urge people to read her tweets um, because I think she's really quite, she's a beautiful writer, by the way. Um, and one of the things that's hard is to think about it. And I think Hollywood doesn't care at all. And they're just going to use her story if they feel like it. I think they probably should have gotten her cooperation in some way. Um, I, I think they were too scared to contact her, I guess, right? They didn't want to buy her book or whatever, you know, whatever, uh, whatever they didn't want to do. Do you think it was scared? Because what's the downside if they contact her? I don't know why they didn't then. I don't know who's telling I think it's just, I think it's just a a sloppy move. I don't necessarily think it was vindictive. I think it's a business that thinks about itself. They had their story. They knew what they wanted to tell and they could go forward. And you could question how it makes her feel, but 
all's fair in love and war. Like it's business. They don't have. Of course, to it will her. call attention to it. And by the way, Camille Coten is in it. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She was in Call My Agent, which is my favorite show ever. She was the star of it. Um, she's also in it, which is interesting. Anyway, last thing: Jack Dorsey Square is going to buy Australian fintech company Afterpay. This is a big deal. I feel. What do you think? What do you think about this situation? It comes as other fintechs such as PayPal and Amex are rushing to capitalize on installment loan payment trend. It's basically a layaway for the digital age. And Afterpay said its average user is 31 to 33. Consumer advocates says it's too soon to understand the risks of the fledgling trend. Layaway we know about. What do you think, Stephanie Rule? I think two things. Uh, I think anything in the layaway space, in the peer-to-peer lending space, in the lending to people who um, have less financial security makes me a little bit skittish, i.e. think about how predatory payday lenders yep. are. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so for me, um, consumer protections are really important in this space. However, mm-hmm. what do I think is the most important part of the story? Less about the company they bought and more Square. Jack Dorsey knows this company has an extraordinarily high valuation. Mm-hmm. And so what did he do? He took his he took his stock out for a spin yep. and yep. he bought this company for what? $29 billion, right. which also is probably an enormously high number. But going down the line, when people say, uh, what's the valuation of Square? Why is it so high? Now mm-hmm. he gets to say, well, look at my portfolio of assets. Right. That's right, what I think right, this is about. Right, this right. is about beefing up and putting some legs under his valuation. And of course, he's spending a lot of time at Square and not Twitter necessarily. All right. So in terms of pure competing with banks and things like that, is this should this make those banks nervous or a PayPal or an Amex or others who deal in the credit and this kind of thing? Uh, I don't think it should make anybody nervous. I think it should make regulators wake up. Um in terms of whether you're talking about fintech or social media, right? Traditional businesses are highly regulated, like mm-hmm. traditional media, traditional banking. Um, and the new technology side of it isn't. And we haven't seen the dangerous downside yet because we all love cool, fun, new technology, yeah. especially if it's for young people. But you and I have all lived through the bad part of these things. And yep. I just... I'm super worried about consumer protections. And this is nothing against this company, this industry. It's just important. Yeah, fair point. All right, time for the big story. The newest trend in corporate America is vaccine mandates. Walmart, Disney, Facebook, Google are requiring some or all of their employees to be vaccinated to come to work. Walmart and Disney are two of the country's largest private employers. Here's a list of companies that are requiring some or all of their employees to be vaccinated to come to work. Netflix, Saks Fifth Avenue, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Delta and United Airlines for new employees only, by the way. Uh, Morgan Stanley, The Washington Post, which was a surprise to me. Lyft, Uber, Twitter. What do, you, what do you think? It's not just employees. Restaurants and Broadway shows are starting to require ticket holders and indoor diners to show proof of vaccination. Will this work or produce a backlash, Stephanie? Who cares if it produces a backlash? They damn well should, right? In France, every day we could turn on the TV and say, look at the protesters. What are there? A thousand protesters, 10,000 protesters. The first week Emmanuel Macron put the mandate in place, almost 4 million people in France got vaccinated. It works. And I guess I'm angry because Mm -hmm. for all the noise corporate America gives us about, you know, wanting to do the right thing and being leaders for social justice and writing letters for voting rights, Here's something they absolutely can do to protect our country, to protect Mm -hmm. their employees, to also pay back the government who just bailed out businesses big and small to the tune of trillions of dollars. And now do your part. Businesses have that giant carrot that you're always going to have anti-vaxxers over here, right? They're here. But in the middle are all of these people, especially young-ish people who are like, I'm healthy. I don't really need it. But if you say to that person, great, well, you can't go to work, can't go to a bar, can't go to the gym, and can't go to your favorite sporting event, they're going to run out and get vaccinated. And I think it's super selfish and short-sighted that businesses, remember when we first got the vaccines, we kept hearing people who are fully vaccinated will be able to go to this store without a mask on. When was the last time anyone asked you your vaccination status when you walked in a store? When I'm in a store and I see people with masks on, they don't seem to be people who aren't vaccinated. More likely, they're people who are being extra cautious. Extra cautious. This will be the next big wave of people getting vaccinated. And I think when it go, when the vaccines go from emergency approval to full approval, you'll see a lot more businesses do it. 
All right. So with incentives have been tried, you know, monetary awards, event tickets, time off, different things like that. I just talked to the head of America and they were doing things like that. You got an extra vacation day for current employees. He wasn't, he, he's not trying, he doesn't want to make them. So what would be your argument to Doug Parker or someone else that you, you should make them? Like just, I, I was like, I don't think I'll fly American Airlines if I don't know if all your people are vaccinated. I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I don't think I will. I just think this argument, you can't make people. I don't know. I don't like shots either. But when I walked my five-year-old to show up for kindergarten on the first day, if yeah. he wasn't vaccinated, my other choice was to homeschool. So we, of course, I mean, so of course, yes, boom, I'm going to get my kids vaccinated. So all of this is just crazy. Businesses are like, oh, I'm not sure. They absolutely should do it. Not just in, they're being short-sighted. They, they're saying, I don't want to make this hard decision. I don't want to face the backlash. I don't want to lose customers. Well, guess what? If we don't do something significant, we're never getting rid of COVID. Mm-hmm. Right. If so, you want to actually have your business flourish long term, require it. So there's two things going on. The sort of reassuring vaccinated people that they're not at high risk, because I think some people in the media has gone a little hogwell in this breakthrough vaccination vac- I uh, agree. thing. And I agree. I have to say, like, when you get to the bottom of the story, it's always like one person who had a cough, like kind of thing. And it's sort of like a flu vaccine or anything else where you where you could get the flu. I've gotten the flu when I've had the flu vaccine. And some years I don't, right? Some years I don't, some years I do. So m- many people think the media is over, overdoing the vaccinated people can get I COVID so. thing. Th- yesterday, I saw someone on TV who said, we are in, this is a category five hurricane. Right. No, it's not. It was a category five hurricane last year. And if we're over dramatic about this, mm-hmm. we are going to, then, then pieces, people of influence are going to lose even more credibility. And it's catnip for anti-vaxxers. And right. to, to, you know, it was Ali Velshi who I saw on TV say, and I thought it was a great point. He said, vaccines are like seatbelts. They're not yeah. going to prevent you from having a car accident, yeah. Many people but they could that, definitely yeah. save your life. Right. It doesn't. Yeah, I think it was a guy in Britain who did it. But one of the things that's also in contention is these masks, the mask wearing that's now states are arguing, governors are arguing with local municipalities and everyone else um, over the mask thing. And I think that's a separate thing, separately. But one of the things that's interesting is they sort of get mushed together and conflated in some weird fashion. When was the last time you wore a mask? Today, right now in the Starbucks. So, Do you always? Okay. Uh, well, it's a new thing in D.C. They require it now. They, the mayor just required it. So they make you. So you know. I, I asked because for months and months and months, I wore a mask. I didn't notice it. I didn't. I didn't feel it. I thought nothing of it. And I flew recently. And so I wore a mask. It's amazing when you don't wear it for a while. Yeah. You know, like somehow it felt like burdensome, cumbersome. But yeah, for yeah. months and months, yeah. I didn't, you I wore. thought nothing of it. I think now wearing it, I'm mad, to be totally honest, I'm angry yeah. with the unvaccinated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I'm angry with what they're doing to society, to culture, to business, to my kids. I'm mad at them. Yeah. It is a really, it's a, it's a dicey situation. And one, the question of mask and what cities and states will do and people, I don't think people are going to cooperate on the mask wearing, on the vaccination. That's where we need to focus everything is, is mandates for vaccination for government employees and states. Um, Democratic governors in California and New York have announced vaccine mandates for government employees. I was just thinking of healthcare workers. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I just got a note from my, one of my kids schools where they said, you know, you have to get vaccinated if you, or you can't come to school. Here's two forms, a religious form and a health form if you can't get vaccinated. And if you can't, you have to be tested every day and wear a mask kind of thing. And so it was really interesting. And I was like, okay, this will be an interesting. I'm interested to see the parents that go nuts on this one. Um, well, it, also, everyone who thinks even in a business, oh, well, you can use the religious or the medical exemption. Mm-hmm. Not really. The business is required to then find a suitable accommodation, right? It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, check the box and I'm in. If right. it's, they're going to make it cumbersome. You, yeah. you can't just skirt this or they should, because the number one issue is how do you make your employees feel safe? It's having right. everybody vaccinated. Yeah, 100%. I, I think I businesses just, requiring it is critical. Businesses, I think it's gonna be harder for governments to do it. I think state governments can do it more than federal government. But I think at some level, companies are going to have to step in here and really suck it up and make it happen. You're right. They took the money. Now they have to help us get out of this. Stephanie, we're going to have a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a lot about an area that you're very interested in, infrastructure. Oh, I am. 
All right, Stephanie, we're back. And the Senate is trying to get some work done before the August recess. They even worked over the weekend to finalize the text of a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, a lot less than Biden had wanted. But the bill includes $550 billion in new spending over five years for roads, electric vehicle charging stations, replacement of lead water pipes. Uh, The text for the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was more than 2,700 pages. It would provide the biggest infusion of U.S. federal spending in infrastructure in decades. So $66 billion for Amtrak and rail, $65 billion for broadband expansion, clean drinking water, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us, um, tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of this right now overall. And then I have some questions. I think- You said it wasn't going to happen, right? No, no, that's not true. Okay. All right. Okay. I said, what's not going to happen is a bipartisan bill and this separate three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation. That's what I think you can't get both of those things done. Getting this bipartisan bill done would be a tremendous win for the Biden administration, right? And for the country, we all collectively know we need infrastructure. Does Mm -hmm. the $1 trillion bill have everything in it? No, definitely not. Mm -hmm. But the argument on the other side that we must link the $1 trillion package to the $3.5 trillion makes absolutely no sense to me. I think getting this bipartisan bill done would be huge. We all agree, right? We need new infrastructure in this country. Mm-hmm. Trump claimed he was going to do. He couldn't get it done. And what Democrats, I fear, are, are, are missing here mm-hmm. is the Mitch McConnell factor, right? Self-described yeah. Grim Reaper. They're so Democrats are so focused on like, yeah, 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 get the bipartisan bill done. But we also need our bill done at the exact same time. Let's link the two. I don't think you can link the two. All of those Republicans are going to walk away. And let's be honest, irrelevant of what is in this bill. If I was one of those Republicans, I would walk away. Why would I say, yes, I've spent all this time agreeing on a bill. But at the same time, you're going to also get your own. And so. I completely think that there are lots of things in the go it alone bill, and I would like to see them in there, like the expanded child tax credit. I'd love for that Mm -hmm. to be in there permanently. And I think they should get work, work, working on some stuff in there. Mm -hmm. But if they really try to force this and if progressives do and say, I will not sign A unless I get B, I think it's going to blow the whole thing up. Yeah, they're not going to do that. Do you think that Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is voicing concerns about the bill, saying the House shouldn't pass the bill without the partisan, what you're referring to, $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill? Is there any chance these bills being considered separately? I think they will end up needing to be. Yeah. And even this this idea that all Democrats have signed on to the $3.5 trillion, they haven't. Kirsten yeah. Sinema has already said she's not sure. Joe Manchin. And Sinema and Manchin have yeah. other people behind them who right. want to, who vote the way they do. But Manchin, whether you like him or not, is sort of a human shield. Right. Uh, and I think there are other Democrats who vote the same way he does or ish from states mm-hmm. like my own state, New Jersey, but they let him take the rap. And the other Manchin thing I would say, and you're, you've got West Virginia roots, not me. Mm-hmm. There's lots of, if you want to go after Joe Manchin for a million reasons, go for it. But, um, he doesn't answer to voters in any other state but West Virginia. Yeah. And this is good for West Virginia. The things he votes for are, are what keep him in office and it's good for West Virginia. And if you want to have somebody run against him as a Democrat, go for it. But there, but if Joe Manchin loses, there's a better chance he's losing to a Republican. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. So what of the things in here, $66 billion for rail and Amtrak, what did you think of that? That's a lot of moolah for Amtrak. Um, also broadband expansion. What do you think is important here in it in from a tech point of view? From broadband expansion, absolutely at the top of my list. What was taken out of this, that's a mm-hmm. huge disappointment for me, was a small number that would have had the biggest return on investment, which was the $80 billion to fund the IRS. We have a massive tax gap in our country. Tax money that's owed, you don't have to change a single letter in our tax law, but just not collected. I want to say it's something like 20% of the IRS's workforce has been reduced over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They need more funding. Talk about technology. They need their systems upgraded. And so of everything I could look at in infrastructure, the fastest way to put money in and get way more money out would be to fund the IRS. And I'm bummed that they took that money out. Why do you think they did that? Because that's a lot of rich people we know get, get getting taking advantage of all the different rules that aren't being enforced. A hundred percent. But that is, I, I feel like that's a really important, uh, to me, funding the IRS is really important, but mm-hmm. I'm a nerd, not a lobbyist. And- right. 
there are other uh, components in there where people would say there's a lot more need. There's a lot more suffering. They need a lot more support. So I think there's a lot more, there are many more advocates fighting to put other things in there. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's a lot of people fighting to get more money for the IRS. Mm-hmm. And mind you, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you also have a whole lot of rich donors who aren't necessarily tax cheats, but they don't want more money yeah. and more attention to the IRS. So yeah. you're happy to make them happy. Yeah. All right. Last thing is they're giving money to electric vehicle charging stations, but a whole lot less. You know, Biden appeared in front of an electric car company. How, where? How is this going to happen? Do you think the companies are just going to have to pay for the rollout of, you know, different charging stations? I've noticed many, many more around put up by Tesla or whoever. Everywhere I go now, when I stop and drive and you see them in the back of gas stations and things like that. Um, how, where do you see that? How That's gotten that got cut rather considerably, but it's still here. Uh, it did. Well, listen, uh, from their perspective, investing in those charging stations is investing in the future. And while that's great, I think they're looking at it as my house is broken right now. The mm-hmm. pipes are broken, right? The the toilets are broken. We have to fix that before we put an addition on the house. Mm-hmm. And so they looked at things like charging stations as an investment in the future and said, let's cut that. And let's invest more on what's in dire need, like our literal bridges that are falling apart. So I get it. And most likely those companies are going to have to put the money forward. And uh, that's kind of okay. They can. Yeah, they can. And then, you, so you think it will be passed separately? You think that's right I think now. there's think- no way they get passed together. And if Democrats try this. to make that happen, they lose. But I will, the one thing I'll say, you can never count out the depths Mitch McConnell will go to, to F something up. Yeah. Right. He made it very clear for eight years with Obama. He's made it clear now. Uh, he's here to block the Biden agenda and he doesn't care if you call him a fake, a phony, a liar, a jerk, he'll just hop right back in his turtle shell. And at the end he gets what he wants. So (laughs) everyone having a dance jam that like, oh my gosh, even Mitch McConnell voted. Yes. It was a procedural vote. Like I'm not having a party yet. All right. Okay. It's a perfect note to switch to our next topic, our friends of Pivot. Welcome to the Pulitzer winning Washington Post reporters, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Well, you guys are right at the top of the bestseller list right now, along with several, Mark uh, Levin and uh, Jesse Waters, but nonetheless, you're right up there. So you interviewed more than 140 senior administration officials, advisors to the president, and even the president himself at Mar-a-Lago, 70 days after he left Washington. Trump certainly seemed to think of himself as a kingmaker. Uh, is, is he one? So I'd love your sort of thoughts on how you look at that right now. You know, there's no question, Kara, that he is decided he's going to be a kingmaker. And there are certainly a ton of people waltzing and flying and trekking to Mar-a-Lago to kiss his ring. Phil mm-hmm. and I sat on the pretty brocade sofas in his lobby at Mar-a-Lago, and we watched a parade of people come in, uh, but also in among them were lawmakers who want his endorsement. He's not wrong that uh, he has an impact on whether or not they're going to win the primary. Dan Crenshaw was there uh, when we when we visited, just waltzed over to say he just thought Trump looked great, healthy and hale, sir. What's your what's your secret? They are meeting with him on a regular basis. Republican lawmakers who want to raise money, want to tap into his base want to seize some of his popularity. And what happened, Phil, in the Texas special congressional election last week? The Trump-backed candidate lost. That's exactly right. He endorsed a candidate for a special election in a congressional seat down there, but another Republican candidate won that race, and it it shows you the limitations of Trump's power, Uh, although there's a consensus, obviously, within the Republican Party, including with the leaders here in Washington, that, that Trump's endorsement is influential and that that may have been a fluke. And, and heading into the midterm elections, they're, they're all about Trump still. Stephanie? Except, of course, Republicans lost the midterms while Trump was in office. I guess the thing that confuses me so much um, is, what is Trump? He's a branding genius. Um, why, does it, why, does he, why is he still looked at as a kingmaker? I mean, Carol, yes, all, the parade of people all came down there to see him, but they don't have to. Right. There was a moment after the insurrection, after the election, where you saw there was that one night 
when Lindsey Graham said like, enough is enough, like we're gone. And then Lindsey Graham got heckled at an airport. And then he said, forget about it. You're my homeboy. (laughs) Trump lost the midterm, you know, lost the house, lost the Senate, lost the White House. I don't understand why he has that kingmaker status. Um, Explain why, or is it even true? Well, it's definitely true still. I mean, if the primary was held tomorrow, he would be the Republican candidate for president. Um, now, he's got a long time to go before he has to make that decision. He, he certainly intimated to us that he's a guy who's considering running. But I really want to just zing in on something else you said, Steph, which is this idea that there was a moment when they could have broken with him. I was talking to a Republican uh, fundraiser and operative who was nearly in tears uh, a week ago telling me that if all of the Republicans had just joined hands after January 6th and said, as Lindsey Graham did, enough is enough. That's it. Attack on our democracy. We're done. If they had had the guts and the spine to do that, Trump would be far more in disgrace because they would have communicated en masse that this was unacceptable, that this call and response to attack the Capitol, to, to basically bring people to the Capitol to, you know, threaten to hang Mike Pence, his vice president. If they had done that then, according to this operative, uh, we would be looking at a very different field. So we're watching the hearings last week on the Capitol attack. Your book paints a picture of what led up to that, what was going on in the West Wing, which is going to be a critical part in these investigations. But you reported a lot of it. Um, And you also had a chance to ask Trump what his goal was on January 6th. Talk a little bit about that, Phil. And then, Carol, what, what do you think is going to come out of these investigations? Well, we did ask Trump what his goal was, what he wanted from his supporters when he said march to the Capitol. And he you know, we were struck by what he said in his answer. He said, I wanted what they wanted. Well, what they wanted was to hang Mike Pence. They wanted an insurrection. They wanted to overthrow America's democracy. They wanted violence and the lives of police officers. You know, Trump that day, according to our reporting, was watching it all unfold on television. He was in Mm -hmm. a private dining room just off the Oval Office, transfixed by the images on TV because he, he liked what he saw. He saw thousands of his supporters uh, marching up the steps of the Capitol, waving his flag, wearing his red Make America Great Again hats. It was the show of force that he wanted to try to intimidate lawmakers. And it, it, it took a lot of persuading over a couple of hours from some of his advisors, including his daughter, Ivanka Trump, to try to get him into a headspace where he would actually be willing to tell his supporters to stop the violence and go home. It's striking so that the president that? wouldn't act. Why do you believe that that BS Ivanka behind the scenes, all the good that she was doing, <laughs> trying to get her dad to do the right thing? Like, Stephanie's not I an Ivanka you, fan. People, no, because for four years, people kept whispering that garbage in my ear. You know what she's doing where no, when no one's or what she does privately. Yeah, Baloney. Yeah. Then sit down for a public interview and say, this is what I was doing behind the scenes. The fact that that was, to, I, I, that's the one thing that I'm like, give me a break, Phil. Why, what makes you believe? Ivanka was urging him. <laughs> I, I hear you, Steph. And look, over over those four years, we were told so many times that Ivanka was the moderating force, and she had very yeah. little influence doing that. It didn't work almost always. But we know from reporting with other sources uh, on January 6th that she actually that afternoon did try to pressure her father tried, and persuade him. And she failed repeatedly because it took several hours for him to actually issue that statement. And she wasn't the only one doing it, but she was one of the people doing it. All right. So in this case, she was actually attempting it because things had gone off the rails. So what do you imagine happening, Carol, in these in, in this investigation? Because you have you do have two Republicans who are, you know, on the outs with the Republican Party inexplicably. Um, and and they're they're going to they have this amazing testimony. What what is what's going to happen? What from this? You know, I, I don't have very. I mean, I don't have very high hopes because everybody has has turned it into a political game, a strategy of how to avoid making Republicans look bad for not wanting to acknowledge what actually happened on January 6th. I mean, we saw this heartbreaking, heartbreaking. If we thought January 6th was bad, hearing the officers describe what it was like for them, it just bone chilling. Uh, and I, I know some of those officers, but I hadn't even heard some of the things that they described. Uh, Officer Fanone, we all know, he nearly had, he had a heart attack. He was right. begging for his life and please don't take my gun and I have kids. This was not the hugging and kissing that Donald Trump right. described to us. But as for what's going to happen, 
not very high hopes that it's going to get what what an investigative reporter wants, which is facts. I will Mm -hmm. say there's one glimmer of hope, which is I've heard that several of the committees have been requesting some very specific information from the FBI. And that information is going to get to the heart of what did our government know ahead of January 6th, not just Mm -hmm. the little bits and pieces that, you know, the Washington Post and my colleagues and I have reported, but what do you get with a subpoena or rather, what do you get with the power of the Hill? What can we learn about what the FBI knew ahead of time? Well, does it ever hang on Trump? Any of it? I mean, one of the things, you know, he can, he blames everybody else. And of course, now he's diminishing it, saying nothing really happened. It wasn't that bad. And then you see it being articulated by lots of people. Megyn Kelly was doing it the other day. All these people are just sort of articulating that it was a tourist. I mean, I think most people say it's a normal tourist visit. That one is easily done. But others are trying to diminish what happened. And most people should be allowed to protest, et cetera. Is any of this going to hang on Trump? Phil? I mean, we'll see if it hangs on him, but you're right about the whitewashing. It's been extraordinary. It's as if we didn't see it with our own eyes, but we did see it, and it's all on videotape. And it's not just Trump who's trying to whitewash it. It, It's the Republican leaders throughout the Congress. It's conservatives on Fox News. They're trying to mislead the American people about what happened on January 6th. And that's why the work of this commission is so important, to get to the bottom of what really happened and to remind people how dangerous uh, that moment was and how close the country came to collapse. But then does the work of the commission result in anything? Because the people who are moved by this or upset or want something done already felt this way before the hearings. And the Republican, as disgusting as it is, political calculation is the American voter isn't thinking about this. They're not caring about it. They care about putting food on their table and inflation. How do you get voters to care about this? Because that's the only way you get lawmakers to do anything. Well, one way is to remind people that if, as one Republican I talked to said, we may have an insurrection every four years if if we are going to tolerate this kind of la-la land description of what didn't happen. It did happen. And are people going to do what was urged by Michael Flynn, one of Trump's greatest allies, right before January 6th? The people have to take to the streets. The courts won't decide. The voters won't decide. The ballot machines aren't trustworthy. We have to take to the streets as people with with some sort of force and with some sort of weaponry to decide who's the president. That's that's a pretty scary place to be. It might Mm -hmm. not be every four years. Remember, we're in August. So August yeah, speaking is the of month which, when the hardcore conspiracy theorists, QAnoners, believe that Trump is going to be reinstated as president. <laughs> and, and by the way, and all joking, you know, you could laugh about it, but Mark Meadows sort of seemed to insinuate something strange in an interview this week. How would you? He he was a big character in your book. Talk a little bit about him and this recent statement that he made that the cabinet was meeting and yeah, I, I'm not sure what a- was going on. There. Such a such a bizarre statement by Mark Meadows. He said that the, that that Trump is meeting with his cabinet uh, as if he were still the president or running mm-hmm. some sort of shadow presidency. And of course, right. I'm racking my mind trying to think which cabinet secretary is actually meeting with Trump because most of them have distanced themselves from him by now. But uh, mm-hmm. Meadows might have meant his kitchen cabinet, meaning you know right. the political people. But regardless, when when Carol and I were down there at Mar-a-Lago with him, it was clear to us that he still thinks he's the president or or thinks. You know, he really? wants to continue acting like he's the president um, with all the adoration and, and the love of his supporters and, and sort of blinding himself intentionally to the reality that Joe Biden is the president now and that the country is moving on past him. Carol, did you have that impression he thinks he's the president? Yeah, I mean, this, the theater of it, Kara, it's just sort of so stunning. Like, you know, we're there arranged to be there by the president at five o'clock dinner hour, people traipsing in from the for the club dinner, going out to the beautiful patio. And he's got the Air Force One model as if he redesigned it. It's there on the coffee table. But it, he didn't redesign Air Force One. It's the design he hoped he would have with its repli- replica is there almost like, like it exists. And when he walks out onto the patio after two hours and 45 minutes of talking to us, dinner is really getting into full swing. And there is a standing ovation and they play hail to the chief as he emerges. Um, everything about that, that visit told me he has, he's created a brigadoon. He's created a special exile where reality doesn't have to really pierce it. Then Trump sitting down with you two for an interview. He knows exactly who you are. I mean, a very stable genius was not a complimentary book about Trump. 
he knew that this was not going to result in anything glowing about him. Donald Trump sitting down with you guys, does that not prove, is he not manifesting that all press is good press? He, he certainly thinks that, I think. You know, he he wouldn't sit down with us for our first book, Stable Genius, but for the second one, it, it didn't take much persuading to get him to do the interview. He wanted to do it. And, and I think he thought that he was charismatic enough that he could somehow change our thinking or persuade us to view his final year in office differently. And, you know, we're not that gullible. We're pretty hard-nosed reporters. And we wanted to go hear what he had to say, but by the time we got there, we'd already interviewed 140 other people who made pretty clear to us what the truth was about him. Wait, so anything think, he said wait, didn't make a difference. You think he thought he could change both he, of your minds? Yeah, he he That's thought he could crazy. win us over. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you obviously weren't won over. So um, so he's given lots of interviews for this attention. And, and I think it's coverage is what he's looking for, because all the books are all of the books are on the bestseller list. Landslide, yours. Um, I don't know about the others, but there's a lot of books and there's more coming out. Um, but how much that's a lot of books. That's a lot of noise, just like he would be on The Apprentice or anything else. So talk a little bit about how how he'll do going forward without the platforms he used to have. He's not on Getter yet. I am on Getter and he's not on Getter. Um, since he can't go on a major social media network, it's unlikely he'll be restored to Facebook. It is, he is not going back to Twitter. Uh, Getter, we'll see if it, because he hasn't gotten on it, but it's not that big yet. I can tell you it's quite small after having used it for a little bit and, and noisy. And it's not the people he wants to reach really. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, how he's going to do that without the social media that he had used so deftly um, while he was president? It seems to me he's going to find his social media low point or high point. He's going to find something. Uh, we don't know what that will be at this minute. And maybe, maybe you're right. Getter is not uh, massive the way Twitter was. Who knows what he'll be restored to or what he'll find. But the truth of the matter is, Kara, he gets press coverage. When Donald mm-hmm. Trump says blah, blah gets picked up. And the yeah. the reason is because we all know he is a defining uh, figure in the Republican Party. And who is Kevin McCarthy singing the tune to? Donald Trump's tune. Who mm-hmm. is even Mitch McConnell, who, who really despises Donald Trump, finds him responsible for his loss of the Senate leadership, finds him to be, um, you know, a person of no principle. Even mm-hmm. he is, is deftly avoiding ticking off Trump any more than he, than he, has to, um, mm-hmm. and certainly trying to continue to keep those voters for the midterms. So Trump's going to keep having um, a megaphone, which he masters beautifully. Then is the only thing that stops him the law? If he's actually in a, a legal quagmire um, that would prevent him from running for office? Because he doesn't have a problem fundraising. Yeah, Steph, I would say the law or his health. Uh, he's 75 years old. And, you know, to run again for president, he would be he would be 78 uh, when the 2024 campaign rolls around. He could do it. Joe Biden has done it. But, you know, Trump is not the healthiest man out there. So there's a chance that he may not have, you know, quite what it takes to to mount that full campaign. OK, now he's going to run because you just said that. So, <laughs> when, so when, when you when you when you look at this, one of the things that's interesting is all this stuff does come out and just these notes just come out this week um, that uh, one of so, uh, 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 someone at the Justice Department was taking around the thing. It's it's sort of criming in plain sight kind of thing. It's kind of at, at this point and all this stuff come out. What do you do you imagine he wants to run again? And I'd love for each of you sort of to think about it. You spent a lot of time talking to everyone around him. What is the hold that he has on the actual voters, which are in these people would abandon him in a second if they could, I suspect. That's my that's my but not these voters. So what 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 do you imagine the hold is and what do you think he's going to do if you had to guess? I mean, I know you're not supposed to guess, but like spending time with him, he it feels like he wants to run again. Correct. Is that maybe I'm just being spun by him? I mean, it's funny. I like the way you put that question, Kara, because two things at once. One, the guy didn't think he was going to win. He was shocked on election night in 2016 when he won. It was a branding exercise. It was a way to get yes. hub, right? And when he won, he probably was in that particular room he was sitting, the most surprised of all of them that that had happened. But once he became president, he really fell in love with that and he did not want to give it up. And And he did a lot of things that you could argue if you weren't president, they would be a crime. You would be indicted. And as for criming, I love that word. I'm going to try to get that into the newspaper stories. <laughs> criming um, uh, right is just a, it's a, it's a fun one. But, you know, if he were not president, 
he would have he he met the standard for being indicted on multiple counts obstruction of justice in four different instances he was stunningly able to have a phone call in which he asked a foreign power to investigate an american also skating right over the law you asked what's his hold this is where you know i think phil and i realized in the first books reporting for not before i alone can fix it stable genius that it's mastery of making people who have felt forgotten, dismissed, looked down the nose of by coastal elites, making them feel that he's their defender. He's got their back, even though he has done almost nothing for them, then say, I am your defender. The other thing he's got going for him is his ability to stoke that anger and fear, not address it, amp it up. And that has, has had an amazing effect. Phil and I've gone around, you know, all over the country, remotely, of course, being interviewed. A lot of Republican people inter- ask us, who are Trump followers, ask us, how dare you have all this hate for Trump? How dare you put this in this in this book? You were never going to change our mind. Trump is our guy. And what interests me is they're actually not interested in the facts that we've carefully corroborated. They're not interested in the fact that mm-hmm. we fact check this book with Donald Trump. They're not interested yeah. in that. They're interested yeah. in the fighter, the pugilist, the man that says he's their defender. They don't care what he actually does. They just care that he keeps saying that. But then isn't it just not, we always say it's that forgotten voter, but it's also the very affluent voter, right? In that, in that make America great again, it's that white affluent voter who, you know, who now likes to say, oh, I'm being buried by, you know, I can't run my business the way I want. I can't hire who I want. It, on on August 4th, Wingfoot, which the U.S. Open Golf Tournament is supposed to happen there next week, is having an event for Trump that they've been trying to keep quiet. That's an 80-person banquet, right? Like, these are some of the most affluent New Yorkers who know all the things in your book are true, and half the nonsense out of his mouth is false. And beyond that nonsense, they all watch the insurrection and they know it's true. So what about those voters who stand with him, Phil? It's really important because they've all made their own sort of moral and ethical calculations where they're going to set aside uh, the things that they know are are true and, and harrowing and even disgusting about his leadership and his character uh, because they make a buck. Either their taxes are lower or their businesses can can thrive in a way that they wouldn't under democratic administration. Um, you know, they care about the bottom line and, and they're not going to you know, focus so much about the morality uh, in that office or about the, the America standing abroad. All right. Very last question. Will he run? Each of you. Prediction. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Will he win? He's got a good chance. If, if Joe Biden doesn't run again, uh, I think he's got a, a better than good chance. On that note... Thank you, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. Their book is called I Alone Can Fix It. I guess there'll be a third one after this. Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year is out now. We really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Steph. Thank you, guys. All right, Stephanie, one more quick break. That was fascinating, a little scary. It was, for real. I know, for reals. Uh, We'll be back for wins and fails. Support for Pivot comes from Hidden Layer. It seems like everywhere you look, industries are turning to generative AI. We talk about it a lot on this show. Businesses can generate more ideas, answers, connections, solutions, and momentum. But at the same time, security teams are forced to slow down that progress so they can make sure AI adoption is safe and responsible. Hidden Layer's AI detection and response platform secures generative AI and large language models from malicious attacks, leaking of confidential information, and intellectual property theft. Hidden Layer helps you generate more by enabling seamless, secure generative AI. Here's how it works. AI detection and response protects businesses from potential attacks by monitoring and analyzing the inputs and outputs of their generative AI applications, blocking harmful transactions and alerting security teams in real time, allowing organizations to accelerate their AI adoption with speed. Customers in finance, technology, healthcare, and even the U.S. Department of Defense trust Hidden Layer to protect their AI today. Plus, Hidden Layer was named Most Innovative Startup at RSA, the most significant cybersecurity conference in the nation. With Hidden Layer, go from pause to possibilities. Generate more with Hidden Layer. Visit hiddenlayer.com slash pivot to learn more about Hidden Layer's AI detection and response solution. 
Okay, Stephanie, wins and fails. I would love to know what you have. I'm just going to let you do them today. Wins and fails. Really? Okay, I'm going to give you two fails to start. My first fail is the state of Florida. They have 67 counties. 66 have high COVID transmission rates. The average age of a person hospitalized in Florida right now is 42 years old. Yeah, right. So all this, oh, it's for people who are old or are vulnerable. And meanwhile, last week, Governor DeSantis was out giving a speech in Salt Lake City, fighting against the mask mandate, saying he's going to defund schools if they insist on having mask mandates. So I would say Florida lost. The number two okay. loser last week had to be Tom Barrack, one of President Trump's oldest friends, closest allies, gets arrested. He is in a heap of trouble. The fact that his bail was $250 million speaks to, I mean, that's an enormous number, right? For a guy who is a super wealthy California jet-setting international businessman. At the age of 74, he is looking at a tough road ahead. And I think it's really telling that Trump didn't say one single thing about it. And I would say the winner for the week, you know, I'm going to the Olympics, obviously. Uh, Team USA, but most definitely um, Suni Lee, the, the the now gold medalist. My favorite thing was when her dad called um, Simone Biles is truly the greatest ever because mm-hmm. she enabled my daughter to win gold and everything <laughs> that happened around Simone Biles. Like it's a win yeah. for mental health awareness. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And also she, she knew what she couldn't do. She knew she couldn't mm-hmm. do it. People don't understand that. I just, I would say the fails were continuing people to insult her. Um, but you're right. Some of the Olympic stuff is really great. It's difficult to watch and the ratings are down, but it's nice that they're still taking place. Obviously, the upsurge in COVID in Japan's not very welcome. Yes, that's true. Ratings are down, but I would say because of all the on demand, I can kind of watch it whenever. I, listen, for everybody who's going after Simone Biles, I'd li- yeah. each one of them, I would love for any of them to come and sit down with us. And I'd love to know where they showed great mental or physical fortitude in any yeah, significant way. Based on what I read on Twitter, it was a bunch of <laughs> silly boys in lazy boy chairs moaning and groaning. Yep. Yeah. Tell me what they've achieved. They couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag, as they say, as they say. Okay, Stephanie, that is the show. We'll be back on Friday. My co-host for that show will be attorney and contributing columnist of the Washington Post, George Conway, who will be able to comment on what uh, Phil and Carol just said. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit your questions for the Pivot podcast. The link is also in our show notes. Stephanie, thank you so much for doing this today. And I'm going to let you read us out with the credits. Today's show is produced by Lara Naiman and Camila Salazar. Ernie Enderdat engineered this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify, or basically wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked our show, please recommend it to a friend, maybe somebody you don't like. Thank you for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Kara. 